I first heard our guest's name in the late 1960s. My uncle lived in the Haight-Ashbury, and when we drove around, he'd point to a house and say, Willie Brown lives there. He said it with significance, so I asked, who's Willie Brown? A man with a big future, said my uncle. So when the legendary Herb Cain wrote of our guest's joie de vivre and political talent, I felt like an insider. I already knew that name. I do recall peering at that house, seeking this up-and-coming politico on many occasions, but I never saw him in person until a quarter century later when I attended one of his celebrated end-of-session parties in Sacramento. By then, the whole country knew his name. As Speaker of the California State Assembly, Willie Brown was one of the most powerful politicians in the nation. No matter where you stood in his politics, everyone in the Capitol agreed he was a political wizard. And by the way, partly due to his influence, Sacramento was more fun back then. Mr. Brown later served as mayor of San Francisco for two terms. And note, he has not retired. He still practices law, and his advice is sought by Democratic leaders and Governor Schwarzenegger alike. Currently, Willie Brown is on tour for his book, Basic Brown, My Life and Our Times, from Simon & Schuster. The tour brings him back to Sacramento on the 19th as part of the California Lecture Series. Mayor Brown will sit down and talk with former Sacramento Mayor Phil Eisenberg. We've managed to catch up with him in Philadelphia, and it's our great pleasure to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Mayor Willie Brown. Uh, thank you very much, and that was a fabulous introduction. I'm amazed that your uncle would have pointed out my residence as being occupied by somebody with a future. I'm sure glad I justified his representation, <laughs> if I did. Yes, you certainly did. I can't remember if it was about 66 or 67, but uh, I remember it well. Yes. But, uh, Mr. Mr. Mayor, a, a lot of people see a Democratic victory in November. What, in your opinion, should and should not be done over the next nine months for Democrats to take back the White House? Well, for openers, I'm pleased that as of the Kodak Theater debate, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama have seen the wisdom of a discontinuation of the attacks upon each other. The Ronald Reagan pronouncement to Republicans a long time ago, I shall not speak ill of fellow Republicans. For Democrats to win, the application of that wisdom must become a reality. Well, Senator Barack Obama is an African-American. He's making a serious run at the presidency. Uh, as a boy back in Texas, you had to pull the shades down on the train so that white citizens would not even see you on board. So Obama's candidacy must bring you some extra joy at the progress that's been made in this country in race relations since the 50s. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, Barack Obama's campaign has, for the first time, caused people at the national level to look at a candidate without reference to the color of his skin. What happened in the state of Washington, what happened in the caucuses in Iowa, what happened in Alaska, what happened in North Dakota, all of that was a reflection of people finally looking at a candidate first and the color second. And that's a very good thing. Basic Brown provides us, all of us, with some lessons in politics, quite a few, in fact. Uh, you say that Mr. Smith goes to Washington is pure fantasy, and that to be effective, you need to reach a political consensus. Can, can you talk a little bit about consensus? Yes. The whole business in a democracy is, of course, to bring along as many people as you can, and certainly a sufficient number to produce a majority. And seldom, if ever, can you rely upon just your political party 
to form the foundation and the basis for that production of a majority. Seldom, if ever, can you really rely upon people who philosophically are your soulmates because they always have some competing and sometimes conflicting needs for their constituency. So in building a consensus, you have to make sure you look at the entire body politic. If it's an 80-member assembly, as was the case for my 31 years in Sacramento, I looked at the House as a 79 other members. I didn't look at the House as a collection of Republicans or Democrats. I looked at the state Senate the same way, and I viewed the governor's office in the same fashion. The day after people are sworn in, having been elected in a general election, they became people potentially a supporter of whatever proposal to any problem existing in the state that I may have fashioned. If you have that attitude and that kind of an agenda, then you spend time building the relationships, building the trust without reference to party labels, and the results can be very productive. When we managed to get the state of California, with Maxine Waters being the primary jockey, in the position of leading the fight to free Nelson Mandela by wiping out apartheid in South Africa, that was not a democratic only. It took George Duke Majin and his collection of Republicans on the Board of Regents for the University of California to take the first step. Then it took George McGovern's signature on the Maxine Waters legislation to do the second step. That's a consensus, and that's how I think the system will work most effectively. Well, I must say, I, I, I enjoyed uh, Basic Brown a great deal. Uh, my favorite chapter in your book uh, concerned your advice on separating a private life from a public one. You note that, that a spicy social life can add to your panache and that politicians simply should not apologize for being human, which is advice I think that, uh, that Gary Hart and Bill Clinton uh, maybe could have used. Well, you know, it's amazing how, as politicians or celebrities or what have you, people have an interest, and they sometimes are not exclusive uh, as to only one person. They sometimes can have an interest in many people. However, they seem to get in trouble when they decide to lie about it or when they decide to admit it and then ask for forgiveness. Why are you asking the public for forgiveness? You haven't misled the public. The public didn't sign you on for Queen Victoria's morals. The public signs you on to do the job of being mayor or being assemblyman or being senator or being congressman or, albeit, being president. And in that capacity, they assume that you will do all of the work you need to do on whatever you do private, whether it's attending a Super Bowl game or whether it's attending a Gold Club experience, you will do so not in contrast to, not in interference with your official duties. To the extent that you do that, you are entitled to a pass on any conduct that may raise questions and eyebrows by those who are so pure that they can't stand themselves. Well, this interview is going to go out on Valentine's Day, so I can't help but pass your advice along to people that if they'll level with a partner and not raise perhaps some false hopes, then you don't wind up with ex-girlfriends or boyfriends, but friends, friends that you can keep from then on. I thought that was some sound Let advice. Let me tell you, the relationships that I've had over the years, and there have been some, 
Not one of those persons to this date would ever speak ill of Willie Brown, nor would I speak ill of them. We were friends before, and we're friends during, and we're even better friends afterwards. And that's the basis of how life ought to be. Having a relationship with a person of the same sex or of a different sex, and that relationship moving from the sexual component to something other than the sexual component is no different from the fraternity of brothers and fraternity of sisters and others whom you had in college, in high school. Those are treasured friendships, and they ought to be treated as treasured friendships. They ought to be used in every way as treasured friendships, not as exploitation. And believe me, if you do, then you will not have the trouble of failing, you know, for somehow uh, to be able to uh, keep private your activity for fear it might interfere with your electability. Well, you, you open the book with a GOP donor accosting you and accusing you of wearing a $3,000 suit, and you note that was kind of an insult. The suit cost probably twice that. Uh, Basic Brown is, is a rather unique political memoir that actually offers advice on how to dress right. Can you, can you give listeners just a, a pointer or two about uh, Willie Brown's uh, uh, outlook on wearing clothes? Well, you start with, you cannot wear brown clothes at dinner at night. Don't think that that is anywhere near appropriate. You also, as you go about your daily duties and trying to determine whether or not you might be on television, which automatically means stay away from the white shirt. However, the white shirt is totally and completely and appropriately necessary uh, on your nighttime and your dinner appearances. And then finally, you'll find that in my comments, fit is as important as the cost of the garment you're wearing. You're better off having a garment properly fitted with good quality fabric and use it very often than having three garments, poor quality, bad fit, but because they are three garments, you think it's okay. And then finally, most of us do not have the ability to constantly mix and match ties. Don't try it. When you buy a jacket, buy two or three ties that match the jacket on the advice of your sales associate and let in your sales advisor. And no matter what you do, don't let anybody ever shake you into trying to come up with a garment to be worn with that tie that somebody gave you. For your sake and mine, you receive a tie as a gift, re-gift it, or take it back. <laughs> it isn't going to match what you already have. Well, I always think of you, Mr. Mary, when I drive past you, I'm just going to see the Wilkes Bashford uh, store out there. <laughs> you've, yeah. you've been quite a good customer. You are not a fan of campaign finance reform. You note in the book that consultants get hired to set up regulations, then they leave government service to hire out to candidates, telling them how to beat the system they set up in the first place. What do you think can work in the way of, of finance reform? I think the best thing in the world on the finance reform side is to simply make sure that every nickel that's donated to political campaigns is known by who donated it and what it was used for and the amount which was donated. Believe me, the public is in great shape. If they receive the information, they can draw the conclusions appropriate to the occasion on whether or not you have sold your soul and your franchise and their franchise for some campaign contributions. I cite the example of Alan Cranston, a revered and respected U.S. Senator from California, 
who at that time we had campaign reporting laws that were accurate, a man named Keaton gave him more than a million dollars for voter registration purposes. Mr. Keaton turned out to be a person of some questionable conduct in regards to SNLs. It resulted in not only Mr. Cranston's career being destroyed, but many other senators and other recipients' careers were destroyed. In this day and age, Mr. Keating could have given to what they call the 527 committees, and none of us would have ever been able to connect it to Mr. Cranston because it would have been a 527 committee, and we would not have known, and therefore we could not have drawn whatever conclusions we drew by virtue of that knowledge. I say campaign finance is so complicated and so convoluted and can be so easily manipulated by exactly, in many cases, the people who fashioned it, that you're better off allowing the campaign finance mechanism to be the shining of the light on those who contribute, how much they contribute, and to whom they contributed, and what you spent it for. A combination of those four factors could, in every way, satisfy every need we have. I know that there are some political parties who obviously are of the opinion that they can't raise very much money, and therefore they'd like to spend public dollars to do political campaigns. Well, I say, that's a bad idea. I don't want you spending my tax dollar for your political campaign, period. I want to be in a position that if I want to help you in your political campaign, I do so voluntarily. I do not want to inadvertently help support my political enemies and people who do not conduct themselves politically in the way that I would want them to conduct themselves. Let's let's stay with reform for for a moment. Uh, Phil Burton was a mentor of yours, and, and years ago, he drew district lines to his advantage. Uh, Governor Schwarzenegger wants to create the districts now that are not drawn by legislators, whom, as you explain in the book, do indeed have a vested interest in just how those lines get drawn. You are close to the governor. Uh, what, what do you say to him about this? I say he's wrong. I maintain that if a legislator can vote on whether or not the death penalty can be opposed, if a legislator can vote on whether or not the health care standards for license purposes or there that obviously can be life or death on the basis of whether or not the individual administering to your needs is skilled. It seems to me totally way out of line to say that that same person cannot vote on the district lines that are drawn for people to run for public office. I think the rules and regulations are there. They can be tested in court, and they have been severely tested in court. And when deemed to be self-serving, they have been vitiated and thrown out. I think that's the best mechanism. I think this business of suggesting that somehow there are some objective people selected by some process that will not be infected with the political process that goes on and the political considerations is ludicrous. Everybody I know has some form of an interest in the line-drawn process some form of an interest in the definitions of what is an appropriate political constituency. In view of that, it seems to me we are to tape, we are to tamper with the rules on what the standards are, but for God's sake, we should not remove the opportunity to do the job that needs to be done. 
on reapportionment by those who are our elected representatives. Well, until I read your book, I was unaware of your, your role in the historic legislation that simply legalized sexual acts between consenting adults. Can you take us back to the 60s and tell us how things were, even in a city as liberal as San Francisco back then, and what you did to try and change matters? The level of discrimination that existed in America evidenced itself dramatically as it relates to people who were considered homosexuals. In 1968, it was still there. The Voting Rights Act of 64, the Civil Rights Act of 65, or vice versa, didn't have any application to doing something about what was ranked discrimination against people based upon what was deemed to be their sexual conduct inconsistent with what should be permitted. People were losing the opportunity to be school teachers, doctors, lawyers, and others because any sexual acts between two consented adults and some sexual acts between heterosexuals were considered felonies, and felonies made you not eligible to be licensed or to keep your license if you already had one. I went to a meeting where people were being endorsed. I was the last person to speak at that meeting, and every person before me had gotten a round of applause equal to what Mr. Obama gets just by walking into rooms these days. They were getting applause when they say, I will vote for uh, the uh, model penal code. I finally asked my colleague, John Burden, what the hell is a model penal code? He responded by saying, they are screaming because contained therein is a decriminalization of sexual acts between consenting adults in private. Well, I said, and I know how phony politicians are, they know that a 400-page and a 400-chapter and a 400-section document is seldom, if ever, going to pass easily, and certainly not in a timely fashion. So I got up, and I simply said, when I spoke, I'm not going to vote for the model penal code because those other 398 items in it are not relevant for me. In this meeting, I'm going to excerpt out those particular provisions relating to consent of adults, and I'm going to introduce it as a bill. The place went crazy for about five minutes because finally somebody had been honest and candid and was willing to risk his or her political equity to achieve it. John Burton announced he would co-author it, and over the next five years, we pursued it religiously, and finally, a group of African-American legislators primarily on the basis of an effort Moscone made in the state Senate, the late George Moscone. I believe that it was Nate Holden, the senator from Los Angeles, who caused the vote of 2020 in the Senate, the tie that made eligible the then-lieutenant governor to come back from Colorado and cast the decided vote to break the tie, and that was Merv Dimely. So you might say, Willie Brown, an African-American, Nate Holden, an African-American, and Merv Dimely, an African-American, were the pioneers to initiate what has now become very fashionable, and that's full and complete decriminalization of sexual acts between sentient adults and private, and it participated, I think, in launching what is now a formidable force in many cities, in particular San Francisco, and that is a gay rights coalition that does handsomely well in the world of politics. 
We're speaking with Willie Brown, former mayor of San Francisco and the former speaker of the California State Assembly. His new book, Basic Brown, My Life and Our Times, is now in stores. Mr. Mayor, you mentioned uh, Mayor Moscone a second ago. Uh, There's a startling revelation in your book that you were in the city the day Dan White assassinated your friend, uh, George Moscone. In fact, you had just left when White came in, and you later learned that he'd hoped to shoot you, too. It sounds like you had a very narrow escape that terrible day. Yes, as a matter of fact, I think I was probably the last person other than Dan White to see George Moscone. I exited the mayor's office out the rear door after having a cup of coffee and went back upstairs to continue my law practice. I was representing some drunk driver on that occasion. Shortly after I had exited, um, Mr. White went in. He killed the mayor. Then he went across the hall and killed Supervisor Harvey Milk. It was not until many years later when the Freedom of Information Act allowed for the production of the documents in his possession. He had a hit list. I was on that hit list, along with Supervisor Carol Ruth Silver. He apparently had a view that there were people like Carol Ruth Silver, George Moscone, Harvey Milk, and Willie Brown who did not deserve to continue to live. And his one-man slaughterhouse was going to take care of that problem. For whatever reason, I left Mayor Moscone in his office and went upstairs. Ordinarily, I would have stuck around because he was just going to say no, he couldn't allow for a resignation withdrawal by Dan White. And besides that, he had the new man in the lobby waiting to be sworn in. I assume that if I'd still been in that room, you and I would not now be having that, this interview. Well, when you were Speaker of the Assembly, you worked with uh, numerous Republicans. Uh, in, in recent years, U.S. politics has been considerably less uh, bipartisan. Are, are you optimistic that the political divide in this nation can be lessened in a post-Karl Rove America? I think that uh, out of necessity, uh, the political divide has to be bridged. I don't see us moving forward without the kind of cooperation that we enjoyed during the 14 and a half years that I served as Speaker. After all, in my tenure, I got elected Speaker with more Republican votes than Democratic votes in a contested speakership fight with now Congressman Howard Berman. And I continued the speakership even when the Republicans gained the majority in 1994 when Jim Brulte was supposed to replace me. That means in all of those 14 and a half years, plus the many years that I served as a member of the legislature before, some 17, there obviously was camaraderie among people, regardless of which side of the aisle they may have been elected on. And I think that system has to come back, because we did some marvelous things during the 31 or so years that I served. I mentioned apartheid. We did the ban on assault weapons led by Mike Roos. We did the whole business of dealing with Prop 13 and all of its ramifications. We did the whole business of dealing with school finance and with Teresa Hughes, a Democrat, embraced by Republicans. We did an incredible job with reference to timber harvesting and timber planting. We did the job of what was needed for school finance with Bud Collier. 
a Republican and the relationships with the Democrats. And so there were so many things that had a subject matter history to them that was done on a bipartisan basis. As a matter of fact, we didn't even think partisanship. When you think in terms of mental health in California, and you had the Latterman-Short-Petrus Act, Short and Petrus were Democratic senators. Lanterman was a Republican from La Quinada, a similar a very powerful person, very conservative person. Yet they came together to produce the landmark legislation on mental health reforms in California. All of that was from a time period not plagued with what's called term limits, not plagued with uh, this ideological requirement to prove who you are or who you are not. Those days must come back just for the good and benefit of public order. In last uh, Sunday's uh, Sacramento Bee, a piece by James Richardson, a a biography of yours, uh, made a criticism of Basic Brown. He noted that you've participated in so many developments that uh, have paved the way for the Obama candidacy today, uh, but you you did not really detail them in in that book. And so I guess I'm asking for the historians among our listeners, uh, will some future books talk more about the details of some of those historic events? I don't know what holds what's in the future for me on the book side. I can tell you this. Uh, you read the critic review in Sunday's New York Times, obviously a far more widely read journal. In that uh, review, that particular critic raised questions similar to what James Richardson raised. But he then proceeded to say, but this is the book Willie Brown wanted to write, not the book I, as a critic, want all to have him write. And so, therefore, drop my criticism of his failure to write my book. Read the book from his perspective and what he wanted to write. And that critic says it is the delight, it is the fun, even if the character involved seems to make himself the hero at almost every turn. That's the proper criticism of the book, not that which James Richardson has done. He wanted a different book. I'll be happy to write the book for him if he gives me the same kind of retainer Simon and Schuster did. <laughs> well, I know you've got a lot of data that, uh, that I hope you will leave to posterity. It will all be contained, by the way, in all of my papers and all of the activities that I've turned over to San Francisco State University, the school that gave me my real start in the world of politics in California. And believe me, you can go to the archives and you can find the story of what happened in Gary, Indiana, in the organizing of the first national black political movement that was pure politics. You can find all of the stories surrounding what happened in the Give Me Back, my delegation speech in Miami, Florida, involving uh, my dear friend George McGovern. You can find the history of what occurred with reference to Jesse Jackson's uh, candidacy in 1988, a candidacy which I cheered. You can walk through all of that. I did not think that uh, of sufficient interest and of sufficient excitement at this time to include it in what basically is a limited component of what was is my life. Well, uh, speaking of writers, uh, John Balzer wrote in the L.A. Times that he admires you because you've earned 
your success. Uh, but but Balzer did note that uh, your book doesn't really convey your body language, which is important to how you communicate, which I guess allows us to plug your upcoming event uh, next Tuesday. You will be at the Crest Theater with Phil Eisenberg to illustrate, as it were, the book in person. I certainly will be there, and believe me, the book really is a compilation of many, many conversations similar to the one that you and I are having uh, with a writer named P.J. Corkery, who was of great assistance. And i got to tell you that what Simon & Schuster decided to publish is only a part of what was actually submitted to them. I had, frankly, the best editor that there is, Alice Mayhew, from Simon & Schuster, who became incredibly interested in the book, interested enough to give it its name. And so with that level of expertise helping and guiding me and doing the editing and the directing, i got to believe that their basis of success exceeds that of either Balzar or Richardson. I know, I know we're coming up against it on time, but I would like you to repeat here for the Sacramento audience what you already told Michael Krasny on Forum last week. Uh, this rumor about you running for mayor here in Sacramento, sadly, no truth to it. No truth to it. Uh, you know, the, I was incredibly flattered <laughs> by the fact that somebody, I think probably playfully, included my name in a poll. And when the returns came back, the Sacramentoans spoke glowingly and positively uh, in great numbers about my possible candidacy. And then Kevin Johnson proceeded to say, Willie Brown's a candidate. I will not be a candidate. That is an incredible uh, acknowledgement and compliment to me. But I don't have residence in Sacramento. I'm not indigenous to Sacramento. I'm not sure I understand how to manage the city of Sacramento. I really had to learn to do that in San Francisco. And I'm not certain that I have the level of tolerance for learning anymore. <laughs> well, finally, Mr. Mayor, even if I've not agreed with you 100% of the time over the years, I've derived a great deal of pleasure from just watching your career unfold for four decades. And just as my Uncle Bob was impressed by you in the 60s, so was my nephew, Stephen, who met you at WNYC Radio yesterday. Stephen noted to me he was amazed you could recall all the names of the people to whom you were introduced. And so I guess you've impressed three generations of my family. Well, I've got to tell you, Stephen was a delightful young man. He walked up and introduced himself to me, and uh, he was, he's on his job, by the way. My guess <laughs> is in the next three or four years, he's going to be a star in radio. <laughs> well, I'll certainly pass that along. All right. All right. The book is Basic Brown, My Life and Our Times. Author Willie Brown was Speaker of the Assembly for a record 14 years, after which he served two terms as mayor of San Francisco. He will appear at the Crest Theater on Tuesday, February 19th. Mr. Mayor, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. All righty. Bye now. Bye-bye. San Francisco, open your golden gate. You'll let nobody way outside your door. San Francisco, here is your wondering one saying I wonder no more. All right, he, he is one of a kind. And we do want to note that, yes, the nephew, Stephen, uh, referred to uh, previously, was indeed our former general manager here at KDVS, Stephen Valentino, who, prior to coming to UC Davis to become a public affairs host and eventually our general manager, had previously been on KZFR in Chico as a Chico High High School student. It's a small world, isn't it? (laughs) 
I should also note that uh, before we have ever appeared on KDVS, I appeared on Stephen's show up on KZFR. And speaking of radio hosts, in our third segment, we've got Peter B. Collins, who's been an outstanding voice of, uh, of progressive politics as a radio host now in the Bay Area for, I think, a couple of decades. Stay tuned for Peter after a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm gonna climb uphill just to watch it get dark from the top of the mark. There's Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> 